Who is up for a Bible study this morning? That's good. Um, if you have your Bible with you, um, your phone, tablet, ancient scrolls, please turn, click, or unravel um, to Mark 9. We are on this morning, Mark chapter 9. Um, if you're new to the Bible, Mark is in the New Testament, which is the back third. Um, and it's one of the four books contained in the Bible uh, that tell us about the life of Jesus, sometimes referred to as the Gospels. And gospel just means good news. And I feel like we could all do with a bit of good news this morning, right? Good. So just to refresh your memories then, Mark was written by a guy called John Mark, um, who was a good friend of Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers. Um, and it's likely that his gospel is an arrangement of stories and sermons um, given by Peter in order to tell us about Jesus. However, we're not Mark's first audience. It might surprise you to learn that Mark wasn't written to Tamworth Elim Church originally. Um, we think it was written to the church in Rome. Now, Sean and I um, visited Rome a few years ago and we had a wonderful time. It's full of incredible buildings and, and fascinating history and wonderful gelato, ice cream. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Um, but back in Mark's day, things were a little bit different. You see, there'd been a fire, a pretty serious fire that had wiped out huge parts of the city. And um, that had turned out to be quite convenient to the emperor at the time, a guy called Nero, who wanted a bit more room to build his new palace, his new house. It was called the Golden House. Um, and if you're not familiar with Nero, he's this kind of fairly shady guy from history. He committed matricide, that's killing your own mother. Um, there's a, a statue of him there for you, uh, sporting the neck beard, which is a, a hard look to pull off. Um, I'll leave it up to you as to whether he's done it. But the thing was, with Nero is, is he started work on this palace almost immediately after the fires had been put out. And so people started to scratch their heads and say, well, maybe he, he set the fires in order to make room for his new real estate. And in order to kind of divert the attention away from himself, he blamed the Christians. And the Christians were rounded up and they were tortured and they were murdered in some of the most horrendous ways imaginable including being used as human torches to light the path to his new palace. So history is kind of grim, right? But these are the people that Mark was writing to. These are the people um, that he was wanting to communicate the, this message of Jesus to, people who were in fear of their lives, people who were struggling um, with hope. And what Mark hopes to do is remind them that Jesus is still king, that the one that they are following is still worth following, even in the bleakest of circumstances. And so that's just kind of just a quick recap on the book of Mark. The Bible is not one book, but many books and poems and songs and histories and stories and sayings and so on. And each is written by a different person to a different um, audience or people group, at a different place in time to our own. And it's really important that we remember that as we read our Bibles. It doesn't mean we can't learn from it or that God can't speak through it, but as we try to figure out what it might mean for us today, having the context in our mind um, is really, really important. So on to Mark 9. Um, if you want to catch up on any previous ones, they're all um, on our website as well. Um, please feel free to use that. This morning is actually part two 
of chapter 9. Steve kicked us off with this chapter last week and it contains some fairly interesting um, stories. I think you'll agree. Uh, Peter, James and John headed up a mountain with Jesus and were given a glimpse of his divine nature. It says his, his robes became whiter than anyone could dye them, even whiter than, than Daz could manage. Do you remember Daz? Is that sort of thing? It was adverts from the 90s. I don't know. I don't do the washing. Um, <coughs> I, do, I do the washing up. Sean does the clothes. It's, it's fine. It's equal. It's all equal. <laughs> anyway, it was this incredible spiritual moment. Um, and, and reminiscent, you know, of, of Moses on Mount Sinai. But, but Peter, he almost misses it because he's too busy faffing around trying to set up the tents and kind of capture the moment somehow. It's like when you, you know, when you go to fireworks displays and some people like record it on their mobiles and just sort of watch it through the little screen. Like, why? Does anyone sit at home and re-watch fireworks displays going, ooh, ah. It's like weird, isn't it? And so this voice from a cloud comes and it says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Put down the tent poles, Pete. Pay attention because you're missing the moment. And then when they come down the mountain, there's uh, much like Moses, they discover things have gone a bit wrong. The disciples are arguing with the teachers of the law and there's a, an angry father and his son in the crowd. And, and so Jesus has to come and smooth the situation over. He chats to the father who turns out just wanted his son exercised. Not because he was overweight, but possessed. Um, so Jesus frees him from that. And then he takes the disciples indoors, uh, away from the crowd, and he gives them that, that look. You know that look you get when you've been naughty that y- your parents give you? That sort of says, come on, explain yourselves. What's going on? And the disciples say, well, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Why couldn't we do it, Lord? And he says, well, you know, this kind can only come out with prayer. And in other words, your approach to the situation is all wrong. This isn't about authority. This is about submission. Jesus had already given them the, the authority in chapter 6 to do it. But this was about submission. And so there's this kind of subtle theme in this chapter that, that develops all around this idea of misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. that The disciples were, were kind of getting some things wrong. You know, it actually begins at the end of of Mark 8, where Jesus says, who do you think I am? And they kind of get it. They're kind of on the right lines. They say, well, you know, you're the Christ, or or you're the the Messiah. You're someone who's special, someone who's anointed by God. But the problem is they have their own idea of what that means. For them, they think it means power and authority. They think it means sort of military might, the strength to subdue their enemies. They think it means a crown and a kingdom. And so when Jesus starts to say things like, you know what, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Their their minds, they can't cope, their brains can't cope, it doesn't make sense. Why would God allow his holy and anointed one to suffer and die? And Peter even rebukes Jesus for it and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Satan just means adversary. He's telling him that the way he sees things is not the way that God sees things. And so this theme of of misunderstanding is kind of rife in the middle chapters of Mark. It's almost as if Mark is kind of telling his audience, you know what, even even Jesus' closest followers, they kind of thought they had it all figured out. They thought they knew what was going on, but, you know, it turns out they they were wrong. Jesus was doing something else, something unexpected, something that's never been seen before. 
And so sorry if that seems like quite a a long-winded introduction, but I really wanted to give you the context for this next section because Jesus is about to deal with some of this misunderstanding. He's about to tackle it head on. He's going to explain to his disciples the differences between the kingdom that they are imagining in their minds and the kingdom of God, the things that Jesus actually came to do, things that he actually came to institute. And so we begin in verse 30. It says that they left that place and they passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. That's important. You know, constantly in Mark we see that Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people always after something but now he wants to give some special attention to his followers, to his disciples, to his nearest and dearest. There's some things that he thinks they need to hear, things that he needs to tell them and maybe we need to hear them as well. And so he begins by reminding them of what um, he's already told them at the end of chapter 8. And in fact, we'll tell them again as we get into chapter 10. He says, the Son of Man, which is the name he calls himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But again, we're told the disciples don't understand what he meant. And, and it also says that they're too afraid to ask about it as well. Too afraid. Why were they too afraid to ask? Well, perhaps they were feeling a little bit sheepish over the whole spending time arguing rather than praying thing of, of last week. Maybe they were afraid Jesus would call them a name, like Satan, as he had done previously. That kind of felt good. Maybe they just thought Jesus was telling another one of his stories or parables and they didn't really get it and they didn't want to appear stupid. We're not told. We're sort of left to guess. But I can imagine how hard it must have been for the disciples to really hear what Jesus was telling them. Not just because they loved him and and, and didn't want to see him suffer uh, or come to harm, although I'm sure that's true, but because the things that Jesus was talking about now were not the things that they were expecting to happen. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Things up to now had been pretty great, right? Jesus had invited them to join his little troop, his, his gang, if you like. They'd left their jobs and their families and they were, they were traveling the world with him, witnessing miracle after miracle after miracle, healings from leprosy and paralysis and deformity and bleeding and, and exorcisms and um, weather manipulation and miraculous food distribution and unparalleled buoyancy as Jesus walks across the water, even bringing the dead back to life. I imagine they thought it would kind of last forever. You know, Jesus, but Jesus is talking about being handed over and killed. It doesn't make any, any sense. I mean, how would that even work? By this point, there were hundreds and hundreds of people following him. Jesus had the makings of his own army. There's no way anyone could touch him. I mean, how could that possibly even happen, right? Unless, for some reason, he voluntarily gave himself over to people that wanted him killed. And that would be crazy. So they change the subject and they begin to talk again about the kingdom that they are imagining. They talk again about the way that they think things should be rather than the kingdom that Jesus was bringing about. How did that conversation go? Well, it says in verse 33 that as they came to Capernaum, when they were all in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, They had argued about who was the greatest. I sort of imagine 
the look on their faces, can't you? Did he hear us? Uh Uh-oh. Does he know what we were talking about? Um, What we learned from the Gospels is this was kind of uh, a bit of a hot-button topic for the disciples. This isn't the only time that they have this particular argument. Luke tells us they have the same argument during the Last Supper. During the Last Supper, can you believe that? You know, Jesus is there, this is my body, broken for you. He's just finished washing their feet, and they're complaining about who's going to have the biggest throne in this new kingdom. Or maybe my personal favourite is in Matthew, where we find out that James and John get their mother to weigh in for them. It's incredible. She requests that they be allowed to sit on his right and left in the new kingdom. Imagine that. Mom! Mom! Peter keeps saying he's going to be the best. Have a word for us. How embarrassing. But you see, their expectation was that as Jesus established this new kingdom, that they, his, his inner circle, his, his kind of special favourites, would have new and exciting and important roles. I wonder if Judas was hoping for treasurer and... Maybe Matthew thought he would be chief tax collector. Maybe Simon the Zealot thought he would be in charge of the armies or or the guard. And Peter, James and John must have thought they were well in after that whole thing up the mountain. Yeah, 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 we're definitely his favourites. Maybe we're going to get to be lords or kings alongside him. And I imagine they spoke about it much to the annoyance of all the other disciples. But again, what they were imagining was not what Jesus had planned for any of them. Jesus' kingdom is far more radical than anything that had come before. A kingdom that was not about hierarchy or climbing to the top, but falling to their knees. Not about serving themselves, but loving those on the outside. And they needed correction. So it says, sitting down, Jesus calls the twelve And said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. Very last and servant of all. Not servant of some, not servant of those that we think are worthy of being served, but of all, of everyone. And then he demonstrates this principle to them in the most beautiful way imaginable. It says that he took a little child whom he placed among them. I love that. I love, can you imagine the setup in that? You know, they walk in and, and the disciples are off in the background having their argument and Jesus spots a, a little lad and he says, Oi, Timmy, come here. Who, me, sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up, sir? I want to use you. Teach these guys a lesson. Those ones, sir? Yeah, them. The ones arguing in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. <coughs> Follow me. And it says, taking the child... In his arms. I love that. Taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What's his point? I think it's this. The disciples are here arguing and clamoring for recognition, for fame and fortune, power and authority. And Jesus lifts up who? A little child. I doubt very much the disciples had even noticed that the little child was with them. And that was, that was the point. Because in Jesus' day, children weren't considered important. Along with 
um, women and old men and slaves. They were seen as burdens with little or no value to wider society. In fact, in, 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 in uh, Greece and Rome, unwanted children were often just abandoned on the side of the road and, and left to die. They had nothing to give and therefore they were seen as worthless. But not to Jesus. To Jesus, they mattered. They really mattered. Matthew recalls this story a little differently. He says the disciples actually ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it me? And Jesus calls a little child to him and places the child among them and says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You see, being a follower of Jesus isn't about elevating ourselves to a position of authority, but humbling ourselves in such a way that we become Jesus to everyone. I think sometimes the church can get a bit of a a reputation. It can be seen as a place that is unwelcoming, a place of judgment and condemnation where people look down upon you from their moral high ground and treat you as though you have little or no value to God just because of the way that you, you act or the way that you dress or the way that you think. And, you know, I really hate that. I really hate that because Jesus actively looks for those that are overlooked and he lifts them up. He holds them in his arms and he looks at those who think that they have arrived in glory and he says, you've missed it. He says, you've missed it. It's not what's important. What's important is welcoming people in my name, lifting up those who everybody else rejects. That's the heart of God. And you know, really the disciples, they should have understood this better themselves because in many ways they too were unimportant when Jesus chose them. But the thing is, they'd spent so long in their their little bubble, they forgot where they came from. They began to think that they were the important ones. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you influential. Not many of you were of noble birth, but... You know, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We are all called and we are all saved by God's grace alone. We've sung about it this morning. And sometimes I think we forget that. We begin to think that we are God's special favourites when the reality is that God's love is far wider and far greater than that. And so the disciples look at the child in Jesus' arms and they say, Oh, Jesus, we're sorry. We get it now. We see that everyone matters to you, even those that others consider unimportant. That's what it says in your Bible, right? Well, not quite. John speaks up. He says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because, wait for it, he was not one of us. We're the special ones, right? If you read really closely between the lines, you can actually see the frustration on Jesus' face at this point. He says, don't stop him. 
For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. And whoever is not against us is for us. You see, John and, and indeed the other disciples in this moment were deciding for Jesus who was in and who was out. They were deciding for Jesus who was in and who was out. We're in, you're out. They were drawing a circle around themselves. saying, he's not part of our, our little gang. He shouldn't be trying to do the things that we do, right, Lord? And I, did, I really wouldn't have liked to have seen the look on Jesus' face in this moment because the thing with Jesus is that he always draws a wider circle. He always draws a wider circle. He touches those that other people consider unclean. He speaks to those that others wouldn't give the time of the day. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He lifts up and takes into his arms little children. And we don't know this, this person's story. Maybe they saw the disciples driving out demons in Jesus' name and they thought, you know what, I'm going to give that a go. Hey, that looks fun. And the disciples, they get all uppity and they say, hey, 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 oi, oi, that's not for you. Pack it in. You need to go through our discipleship program first. We need to fix you. We need to vet you. We need to change some things about your life. And then maybe, maybe then will God will begin to work in your life. When we've sorted you out. When we say it's okay. And that's beginning to sound a little bit close to home now. And I don't like that. Because I'm sure there are times where I may have considered people unworthy of inclusion. But not Jesus. Jesus calls us to a far more inclusive vision. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. Wow. I think that's a message we really need to hear in our church today. You know, we've drawn so many circles around ourselves. Catholic, Protestant, charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical, conservative, liberal, all these labels, all these lines, each of us convinced that our way of doing things is the correct way. What about the lines that we draw between us and the world out there? Oh God, no, you could never work in their lives. No chance. I better not offer to pray for them. They just wouldn't understand. They're not like us. They're not one of us. What if God's bigger than we've imagined? What if he's actually at work in the lives of people that we would have never thought he would be at work in the lives of And what if we don't recognize it because we've convinced ourselves that the way we do it is the only way that God works? Sometimes I think, you know, we can kind of get it into our heads that we have a monopoly on God. We don't. You know, Jesus refers to this this man or person, whoever it was, casting out a demon as a, a miracle. It's a miracle that the disciples have missed. But then, you know, he makes it even simpler for his followers. He says, I tell you, anyone who even gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Never mind miracles. If anyone even displays a bit of kindness or generosity on a journey towards me, then I'm interested. In fact, I'll reward them. And I just think we need to be really careful not to write people off just because their journey doesn't look like our journey. And so Jesus, he kind of offers this final warning here at the end of the chapter. And it's a little bit hard to swallow. He says this, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, 
It'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and for them to be thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. Or if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So that all sounds kind of horrifying. Um, Let me try and unpack that a little bit because I don't want to end on a downer this morning. Firstly, to be clear, Jesus is still talking about the person that John has mentioned. The outsider, the one who has the beginnings of faith in Jesus the little one, as Jesus describes him, and I imagine the child was still among them, and the parallel would have been clear. The one that you so easily ignore, the one that you push aside, is actually somebody that I care a great deal about. In fact, he says, if you cause people like that to stumble, it'd be better if you were drowned. And to be clear, he's using hyperbole. It's not a command. Don't panic. But it does indicate Jesus' heart towards those on the outside being brought in. And the disciples, you know what, they they actually learn the lesson. They learn the lesson because later on in Acts 15, when they're sitting before Paul and Barnabas and they're hearing stories of the way in which God is beginning to work in the lives of the Gentiles, they conclude, you know, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I wonder if I wonder if they, when they heard those stories, God caused the, the image of a millstone to kind of flash before their eyes and just remind them of this earlier conversation because Jesus really drives the point home, doesn't he? He talks about cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes and I'm pretty sure the child on his lap thought that was absolutely amazing. Um, I know my kids would have reveled in that story as well. Um, but again, you know, he's using hyperbole to make a point. And the point is that we need to resist the urges that cause us to sin this way. The urges that we have to insist upon our own righteousness instead of God's grace. To build ourselves up in such a way that excludes others and prevents others from discovering Jesus for themselves. He concludes by saying, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you be made salty again? Have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with each other. Salt preserves and fire burns. The offerings... At the temple in Jerusalem were prepared with salt and fire. And the disciples, they needed to know what was in store for them. Jesus had been trying to tell them that he would be handed over and killed. And they too, in the future, were going to face their own hardships and persecution. Mark's readers, remember, were suffering in their own way because of the fire at Rome that had led to their persecution. But in the midst of the fire, Jesus reminds them not to lose their saltiness. Don't lose the the very thing that sets you apart from everybody else. He uses the same phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, but he adds this. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way... Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
So he says, have salt amongst yourselves, be at peace. Not arguing about who is the greatest, but looking to the outsider. Looking to those who are on a journey towards me. I think Jesus' heart is, is always for the outsider. He tells us as much in the, the story of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 in search of the one. So where does this leave us this morning? Um, we try and wrap up. There's probably um, quite a bit more I could say about the, the text. But really what I've kind of wanted to do this morning is just tease out the kind of heart of this message that Jesus is bringing to his followers. Because, um, it, you know, if we're followers of Jesus ourselves this morning, I think there's some really important lessons, some really important messages and challenges for us here. Firstly, that, that we would remain as we were when we were first saved. Not pursuing our own greatness, but living in his grace. As Paul puts it to the Ephesians, it's by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. And all this not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And I'm sure none of us in here have argued like the disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom. That doesn't mean that we don't occasionally think of ourselves as better than those around us. More worthy of salvation, more worthy of a relationship with Jesus, especially than those on the outside of the church. You know, actually, I think it's really, really easy for us to get kind of sucked into that church bubble. That little world of our own making where we surround ourselves only with people who think as we do and behave as we do and agree with everything that we say. Because it, it feels safe, doesn't it? It's like, it's like warm. But I think when we do that, not only do we limit ourselves, but we limit God as well. Because God isn't contained within these walls. He's at work in the world, in the lives of everyone around us, in our friends, in our family, in our colleagues, in those who know him and those who don't yet know him. And we need to remember who we were when we were first saved in order to come alongside those who are being saved. With humility and with grace. I think God hates it. I think he hates it when we boast about our superior knowledge or our greater faith, when we build walls to protect ourselves from the world, but he loves it when we humble ourselves enough to lift others up. Secondly, I think we need to be on the lookout for where God may already be working. On the lookout for where God already may be working. The disciples are so concerned with maintaining the status quo with their, with their little gang that they missed a miracle. Someone performed an exorcism. It's ironic, isn't it? That's the very thing that they failed to perform earlier in the chapter. Did you notice that? God moved in someone's life. He used them without any need for them to be in a discipleship program or even following Jesus. And Jesus, as he often does, he takes it one step further and he says, you know what, even a cup of cold water given to you is seen by my Father in heaven. God is interested in the lives of every single person that we meet. He casts a wide net. He draws a bigger circle. He calls us to a more inclusive vision. Whoever is not against us is for us. And we need to be sure that we don't write people off or assume that God isn't or can't work in their lives just because they don't look the same as us. We don't have a monopoly on God. 
Yeah, we're all on a journey, aren't we? And I think everybody's journey is unique to them. And I don't think it's our responsibility to try and drag people kicking and screaming to the place where we are, but rather to meet them where they are and love them where they are and help them to recognize where God is working in their lives. And thirdly, we need to make sure that we don't exclude others by our attitude towards them. The disciples overlooked this, this small child while Jesus lifted them up, held them in his arms and treated them as someone precious and someone beautiful. And if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that that's a picture of how God sees you as his precious child. Maybe overlooked by others, but, but not by him, never by Jesus. He loves you as you are. And Jesus' heart is always for the outsider. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 in search of the one. The one who is overlooked. The one who is kept at arm's length. The one who feels there's nowhere else for them to turn. The one who isn't sure that anyone cares or even knows that they exist. And as followers of Jesus, it's our job to do the same. It's our job to be invested in the one. So I wonder if you'd stand with me. I'm going to pray to close. I wonder if the band would come up as well while we pray to lead us. Let's just close our eyes. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us this morning. God, I pray that if there is any pride or arrogance or boastfulness that exists in our heart, that you would destroy it. Father, that you would remind us of who we were when we were first saved. Not of noble birth or influential or powerful, but saved by grace, saved by your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and nothing else. And Father, I pray that we learn what it means to live in the truth of that in order that we could recognize, God, where you are at work in the lives of others. Father, I pray that we never write people off or fail to recognize where you are at work. Because, God, you love everyone. You are invested in the lives of everyone. And if maybe sometimes we don't see it because their journey doesn't look like our journey. We're sorry for that, God. But I pray that we would be instruments of your grace and your kindness in the world. God, that we would work hard to include everyone, as is your heart, in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.